acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, family? I'm your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we're your whole street politicians, the, the place, place where the streets, streets and politics meet. What's going on, Mike? How you doing today? I am blessed and highly favored. I am ambitious. I'm a young black man in America. Well, not really young, but I'm, you know, on a, I'm on a cusp of not being old, but not being young. I'm right in the middle there, and I'm feeling good, man. How you feeling today? You're pretty young. You're pretty young. You know, you're, you're um, almost 50. It's still young. Lord, you know I'm 50. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I just push hey. a man. Well, push a man 50, huh? Just go out there with that. They say 50 is good to you. Listen, man, I'm good to me. You know what I'm talking about? I know. That black I know. don't crack. I don't care what it is. This black don't crack, man. They still think I'm 25, 26. I'll so, tell you, know. you that. 40 and now 41 is definitely good to me. So I know that if if this feels good, they say 40, you grow up, you in your 30s, you're growing up. 40, you grown, but 50, you don't give a fuck no more. You just say whatever you want to say and, and that's it. People don't like it. Oh well. So but I always been like that. So it ain't gonna be much different for me. Maybe you never know. It might be a little different, just a little, little different. If I get any more unhinged and not giving a fuck and saying what the fuck I want to say, it, it ain't gonna work out too good. Well, we got some friends that definitely say what the they want to say, and they are, and I think they're a little different. But I think about Cora Masters Berry and Hazel Dukes. Those are two women oh, no, that that's are in different. there. That's, that's <laughs> a whole nother level. That that's a whole level level. Of don't give a fuck. <laughs> Like they don't give a fuck about your feelings. Grown, grown, grown women. Nothing. Grown, uh-huh. grown, grown women. Oh yeah, that's like, grown. That's adult grown women. They ain't got. They talking exactly what they feel. It ain't no filter. None of that. Yeah, none man. of that. Yeah, man. So the world is still the world. There's still so much happening in the world. I was looking online um, uh, earlier this week and watching like how many different cases are happening around the country with like people 
um, you know, being killed, people tagging us. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? So I just feel like I'm constantly, my head just spins around in this society because there's just so much happening at once. It is. It really is, man. Um, you know, like you said, the cases, the violence, the pandemic, the this, it's just so much, man. You just need to take time to breathe. Like the last couple of days, I've been just taking time to just think. You know, just to exhale and just think, because you got to take it in, man. It's like being in the information era, information is coming so fast and you just get, it's just overload, man. So I know, and, and this is me as an adult man who is pretty much seasoned and knows things. So I know how much this is affecting these young kids that they don't even know, you know, they don't have the, the wisdom and the experience that somebody that's older has. So, man, I'm just, I'm praying for our babies, man. I'm just, trying to do whatever we can. We just got to make it a little better for them and a little easier for yeah, them. Yeah, making it better for the little kids. And, you know, speaking of that, uh, one one good thing that did happen just a few days ago um, is that in the Jamarion Robinson case in Atlanta, where he was shot by police officers 76 times, man, I mean, between Gerald Griggs, the head of the NAACP, and also an attorney in Atlanta, uh, Queen Yanastaha, uh, Kimberly Latrice Jones. These are folks that have been working on this case and standing with Jamarion's family for oh, for five years. This happened five, five years. years ago. He was shot 76 times. And finally, there has been an indictment of two officers. Um, and, you know, just seeing uh, Miss Maria Robinson, Jamarion's mother, just watching her exhale to say that she fought the good fight and never gave up on behalf of her son. It was so powerful, so powerful. And I tell you, people don't realize how having those leaders that I named to be there every step of the way with you, like there's nothing, I know families that look at me and say, yo, we don't know how we would have done it if people didn't continue to show up and to be there. And it's just, it's a powerful, powerful moment for the movement to see that after five years, there's actually an indictment because by now, most of the time we've received the news that there won't be an indictment. Yeah. And, and shout out to Jamarian's mother. I met her a couple of years ago, man. She is a beautiful woman. Right. You know, I, I, you know, as much as we, we feel jaded and the system has failed most of the times, I have to say that we are slowly starting to see a shift, an acknowledgement, at least there's an acknowledgement that people are being killed. You know, before there wasn't even acknowledgement, you know, so slowly we still got to get Breonna to, we still need justice for Breonna Taylor, man. And we still need justice for so many different other people. So many. So many different, I can't even name, but, you know, just in this case, we just got to be able to say, you know, we fought the good fight and we actually got some good news at this point. So shout out yeah, everyone who fought I, that I, fight. And I said her, her name wrong. It's actually Monteria Robinson. Monteria, Monteria Robinson. Yes, Robinson. Right. Yes. So Monteria just let me sure correct that. But yeah, shout out to everybody there. And to your point, an indictment is a slither, a slither that's in the direction of justice. But you actually have to get convictions. Then you got to get them sent to prison. And that's a lot of work. So the folks who've been on the ground, this gives them the energy. This is where the fight going, starts, right? But it's yeah. where the real fight begins. And that brings me to my thought of the day. 
I try my best to use these moments to think of things that are also on the minds of those people who are listening, right? So, you know, while yes, we have a show that covers a lot of political topics, a lot of community projects, social justice issues, but we also are humans. And that's what Street Politicians was always about, being able to cover culture and politics at one time. And so last night I was having a nice conversation with our sister, Dewana Thompson, who is um, in Atlanta, I mean, excuse me, lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She um, is an incredible organizer. She's an incredible businesswoman. She is um, just like so so many things, all things dope. If you don't know Dewana Thompson, please. She's been on our show, folks, researcher. She's a political consultant. Um, very successful Black woman. Um, and there were other Black women at the table. We were all just talking about, you know, uh, we specific, it really came up because we were talking about me crossing and becoming an alpha, an, a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, because you got to say all that and make sure that you say it right. Um, and so as we were talking about that, we were talking about Kappa men, alpha men, and just talking about why we as Black women, successful Black women are single. So many of us. And there were men at the table, an older man in particular, who started to say that we as women have lots, we as successful women have too many demands. And I'm wondering... If everybody else feels that the reason why so many of of us are single is because our expectations are too high. That was really my thought all night. I was thinking, can your expectations be too high for yourself? Well, I mean, that's it's, it's based on who you are, right? It's based on what you think. They might not be too high for you in your mind. But if they're actually not being met, right? If you if you can't find something that fits your expectations, then you might have to rethink your expectation, right? I mean, if you look and say, yo, I want this and I want this, and you're going everywhere. But well, what's too high of an expectation? But I don't know what it is because I don't know what everybody's expectation is. I just think they don't have realistic expectations. I think, you know, I think in relationships, and I say this all the time, that women fall in love with, the fantasy of a relationship, not the, the reality of it, right? Because in their mind, is they watch it on TV and, and they, they've got the, their perspectives of what love is supposed to be by their favorite show and the movie where he grabs her hand, he kisses her, he picks her up and he does all these things. And there's, there's none of this turmoil. You don't see none of this stuff. It's just like people who watch anything else. They watch a sport and they say, yo, I want to be Michael Jordan, but they don't never watch him practicing. They don't talk about when he got cut from the team. They don't see when he broke his ankle. They don't see when his brother used to whip his ass in basketball every day and dunk on him. They don't see none of those things. He had to stay in the gym all day. Women have the same mentality when it comes to relationships. They, Some a lot of them, a lot of them, not all of them. I won't say no, there's no absolutes. There are a lot of women who want all of the fun and the glitz and the love and the romance and all of the good times that don't want nothing that comes with the, the bad times that come with it. So you just I say, you know I agree with that because I know a lot of women who are willing to struggle and go through not, not so much struggle, but the growing pains of a relationship, but they still have certain things that are just not acceptable. And when you say, you know, well, I guess, 
this kind of contradicts my whole point because when you talk about most of us getting these fantasies from TV, my fantasy comes from my father and how good he is to my mother, how amazing he is as a man. But I guess the contradiction is that she went through a lot to get to the place that they are at today. And I'm sure he would say that, hey, she wasn't just a cup of iced tea when he met her this, But the problem is, the thing is, you're looking at the relationship, right? And you, you, you're looking at the end or you, you're looking at where we are now, right? And all of the time, all the shit that she dealt with, that you saying that you won't dealt with, you won't deal with right now, that she dealt with, you just didn't know she dealt with it. Right. And that's what a lot of women do. Right. A lot of women say, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going through this. This is my expectation. A man got to be this. He got to do that. He got to do this. Right. And then other women be like, yeah, yeah. And they deal with men who ain't doing none of that shit. They going through. all, And when you see them, they look like they smile and they're happy. And they dealing with a man that ain't doing none of the shit you talking about. They get into a certain place. They going through ups and downs. They going through so much shit. Every day they ready to break up, they ready to cry, they leaving, they this, they done broke, but they don't went through all type of shit that the average person doesn't know about their relationship. But in 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 to the public, everybody ain't gonna deal with this type of man. I'm not gonna let my man do this. I don't want a man that doesn't do this. I don't everybody has these things. And it's and it's not realistic. But so, so but it's okay. So what my real question that well, what I was thinking about is like. So we shouldn't have standards or expectations, but yet men have expectations and they have standards because there's certain things that we as women cannot get away with. But what I'm trying to tell you is this, right? You have to have a realistic standard, right? If a man has a standard about a woman and he dates 10 women, he can't find that standard. And then the woman he takes 20, if all his whole life, he been trying to find this certain standard of a woman and he don't find it, then that, that, that expectation is not realistic, right? Now, if a woman is dating all these men, you've been, you 40, you 50, and you dating men, and you're like, we just can't do, I want a man that does this and that, and you and you ain't got him at 50? Not saying he don't exist. I'm just saying that the probability of what you're looking for being not realistic is higher. Because if, if, I don't think men have expectations about women that they don't find. Most men have expectations, right? And they find a woman, they say, oh, that's the one I want. I'm good. This is what I've been looking for. The woman, cha- the woman's expectations change or the woman starts to want more or feel like it's not. So most, for the most part, men don't have as big a problem as finding well, because a we come, because we Because we as women come dope. We come pretty much put together. A lot of us come financially stable. We come cooking, cleaning, prep, That's not true. We, uh, all of y'all not doing all That's do. not a real, listen, a lot, a of, lot of us do. A lot of, a lot of, that's not true. That's not true. There are women who do come. Well, the ones they, that I'm talking to understand the need to cook, clean. But you having those conversations, right? You having those conversations with them, right? If you have conversations with the men that they probably date, <laughs> they'll probably have a completely different understanding of this person you're talking about. Every in everybody's mind, they are the perfect mate for somebody else. Everybody can tell you, yo, I, I do this, this, and that. I'm dope. This and that. I don't think it's nobody that you gonna ask and say, yo, you think you compatible for a relationship? Then they're gonna be like, nah, I, I don't do this, I don't do this, I'm not this type of person to my man, nobody's going to say that. So you're going to have a conversation with a bunch of women that look dope and they got all these things and you don't know what so the reality is. you're saying that the women are lying. 
I'm not, that's say, not, no, I'm just, it's not really lying. That is what they, you they, said, because you said- Their perceptions the of themselves and the reality of who they are to other people- <laughs> That's is called com- a lie. It's completely different. Yeah, okay. Well, listen, we got to move on with the show, but I think it's time for us to circle back to some more conversations with some powerful women who are- they are the cookies, the cleanest, and the and some and some form of breadwinners. And yet, still in all, we are still single, and it's too many of us that's single. And I, I know who could tell you. Let me tell you who could tell you why are you single. Well, Kevin Samuels. We bring Kevin Samuels. Oh, bring Kevin Samuels. Kevin Samuels. Now, first of all, here's how I'm going to deal with Kevin Samuels, and I'm really sad that you would make him an example. listen, listen. Let me say something. Let me just say something. No, no, no. Let me say no. You already said it. No, no. Because you already said it. What I'm trying to say is that you would make him an example of a man who can tell me why I'm not, why I'm single. Because when I listen to Kevin Samuel, which I don't often, but the once or twice that I did, yeah, even like we say all the time, a broken clock can be right twice a day, but he makes me feel diminished and devalued. It's nothing about what he's saying. It's nothing about what he's saying that makes me feel encouraged and understand that there are things that I could do better. Instead, he tries to basically strip women of their self-esteem and then somehow or another, we're supposed to look at that as a way to rebuild. So listen to me. No, I'm very, I am very, very upset. What I'm trying to say is this, right? Suggest him as an example. What I I would say is this, right? I definitely agree with you. I think that his delivery and, and his the motive in which he delivers his his information is just off, right? It's totally off, off kilter. It's just totally off kilter, like totally off. But like you said, a bro- broken clock. You don't a lot think of times, disrespectful and harmful. It is, and that's why I say, oh, off means disrespectful. No, it doesn't. Harmful. Off means off means you could get up and say, I was off today. Like today was. So what I'm trying to tell day. you is this: if I if I if you come to me right and you say, yo, which five plus five? And I say it's 10, motherfucker. Fuck is wrong with you? You don't know what the fuck is 10? And I start cursing at you. The, the delivery of this message is completely off. No, I should, there's no reason wrong. for me to be cursing. It's, it's wrong. It's disrespectful. It, what I'm trying to tell you is I wouldn't deliver the message the way. But five plus five is 10, right? So what I'm trying to say is it depends on it because everybody get, gains information differently. There's a lot of, and, and, and I want you to acknowledge this, right? There are a lot of women. His, his biggest fan base is probably women who go there to listen to this information and they go on his page to talk to him. So the way you feel, and I agree with you, I would I, you couldn't talk to me this way. I wouldn't allow you to talk to my mother, my sister. I just wouldn't allow it. I wouldn't talk to a woman that way. But unfortunately, there are women who are receiving this information and they go there for the information after watching him talk to them a bunch of ways like that. And these are not, and these are not women who are not well to do. They're not women who are ignorant. I've seen him have debates and I've seen him have arguments and go back and forth with strong black women. So what yeah, I'm trying to say- Arguments and debates. But again, what and I'm sometimes saying, you got to shut them down. But here's, shut them down. But here's my position on it is that I wouldn't give him five minutes of a platform and I'm sure he wouldn't give me a platform either. So his name never comes out my mouth. I'm never going to suggest to anybody that they go and listen to him as a way to get information about what's happening in their lives. 
under it, no circumstances will he be in my mind of a suggestion of well, how. Pretty I'm not much a joke, not actually, because you didn't. If I'm you, not if you didn't see that it was a joke from the beginning when I said it. No, but it it's not joke. funny. That's why I'm saying it's Lord not. Lord have mercy, Kevin, Kevin Samuels got people. Listen to me. I can get information from anyone. You can learn a lot from a dummy. Me too. Sometimes I'm hard in how I speak. Exactly. I'm hard in how I speak to my child. And sometimes I'm 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 hard in what I say to myself. But I'm saying that I'm not making a brand of diminishing people and making them feel like they are being destroyed and then built again in some weird, twisted way. So for me, I pass on the brother. But for others that may like him and he's their cup of tea, you know, I'm not the type of person that's going to tell you not to go where you think you need to go to drink the type of water that you need so you could be whole. Yeah, you know, and and, and that's that on that. Latoya Bond also with her husband, um, uh, James Bond, who is our, our, they're our family. They actually are, um, have created a brand called a family bond. And they spend a lot of time discussing and delivering information about how to stay married, how to keep your significant other, um, you know, sort of um, excited, if you will, um, you know, what to do as a man to make your wife feel loved, you know, how to, to honor your king, honor your man. And I would much rather get my information from them. And I would too. Go see my boy James. This is my boy James Bond. Make sure you you check out his page and Daddish Bond is there. Family Bond and the Daddish also. Shout out to Daddish, the brand. Shout out to Latoya. We love you. Keep doing what you do. So now let's get into our guests because we've been talking, um, but we have two important individuals that's coming up. And just for folks who are uh, listening and watching, we've pre-taped these interviews. So you'll hear uh, some time frames that sound a little different from the day that we're actually in. But we were trying to get information, especially from our first guest, Tiffany Lofton, about what's happening with Julius Jones, the young man who is on death row um, for a crime that he did not commit. Uh, so we're going to bring Tiffany on right now to talk to us about Julius. And then we're going to hear from another powerful sister. When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10 year, 100,000 mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. 
and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Once again, we have another one of our friends. Well, I wouldn't even say friends. This is our sister, our comrade, our accomplice, our partners in justice, Tiffany Dina Lofton. She <laughs> is the immediate past national director of the NAACP Youth in College. She's also one of our biggest advisors at Until Freedom, and she's the senior advisor at Grassroots Law Project. Welcome to the show, finally. Dina, I don't even call her Tiffany, I call her Dina. Dina, I can't Tiffany, believe, Dina Lofton, what's going on? I can't believe you haven't been on our show. That's like crazy. Like I thought you were one of the first, we had all of Stephen Green, Leslie Redman, we had all of our um, young leading organizers on at one point. I had no idea that you hadn't been with us, but I guess today is the right time. Today is the day. Today is the day. Slow and steady. We've been working out here. So I'm just honored to be on the show. And even if I'm not on the show, I'm with y'all in person. So and I've made I've done better at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. You with us so much that we assume that you're on the show. You know what I'm saying? That's like right. oh, Tiffany been there. Three, four. I that's thought right. you were there three, four times. Yeah, yeah, I was with y'all in the studio. I just wasn't on the screen. But here we go. There you go. No, that's it's like Tiffany it is the show. You are the show. You are the work. Thank you, sis. Thank you, thank so you. Listen, so listen, you know, as much as we love you and we, 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 you know, we could do the little small talk all the time, but right now we have serious business and you're here to give us some updates, you know, about Brother Julius and um, what's, what's currently going on. And I, I hear there's a lot of little things going, you know, some were negative, some were positive as of late. So give us some updates. So I'm gonna start with this top headline. Elections are so damn important, y'all. <laughs> Elections are so damn important. So uh, today is uh, Thursday. We're on Monday. I flew from Washington, D.C. to Oklahoma City, anticipating Julius's clemency hearing that was going to take place at 9 a.m. When I landed around 9 p.m. on that Monday, I got, my phone was blowing up telling me that the clemency hearing had been postponed. And I was trying to figure out why. In 2015, the state of Oklahoma halted all of its executions. It, it, is, the, it is one of the deadliest states. It, I think it's the second, but it's the, one of the deadliest states in, um, when it comes to the death penalty. There were a couple of botched executions that took place in 2015. What that means is, and so I need people to breathe because this is really heavy to talk about. What that means is that they, they issued two executions through lethal injection, but the cocktail of the lethal injection didn't work. And so people suffered before they died. So Oklahoma stopped the executions in 2015. Julius is one of seven people, Julius Jones is one of seven people who is now scheduled on death row to be executed between now, which uh, was supposed to be today with the first being John, a gentleman named John Grant, 
uh, until March of next year. There are seven people on that list in that roster. The state of Oklahoma is now saying, we're just going to continue these executions. Nothing has happened since 2015 up until now. They're just saying we want to continue them. But they went to these seven people on death row and said to them, if we can't do the lethal injection because it doesn't work, how else do you want to be killed? Mm. Wow. Wow. Six out of the seven of them said, F you, you're not going to make me choose my way to commit suicide. And it is actually against my religious beliefs to commit suicide. So I'm not giving you that, 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 that easy way out. On September 13th, the uh, pardon and parole board, who are people appointed by the governor and the governor is selected by the people, they uh, passed a, uh, a decision, a recommendation to the governor basically saying, keep Julius alive with the possibility of parole. Don't kill him. We have evidence that, that proves that he could be innocent. Now, the pardon and parole board is not a court or a jury. It's just the pardon and parole board. So only power that they, the only power that they have is to issue a recommendation to the governor. The governor looked at that recommendation and said, I'm not going to make this decision. Y'all go back and have an entire hearing and do it again. There's a couple of reasons why he could have did that. My personal belief is he's being too much of a punk to make a decision when he could easily at any moment in time sign a piece of paper stopping this entire process and freeing Julius and making sure he's home for the holidays. The governor has not done that yet. He keeps putting the blame and trying to redirect it so that the pardon and parole board can now have that responsibility. He does not want to make that decision. So a lot of stuff has happened since then that we can talk about later, but where we're at right now is because of, because of the protest that those seven people took, excuse me, six out of the seven people took saying, don't kill me, I don't want to be killed, you better figure this out. There was a lawsuit on the state of Oklahoma that went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, go ahead and continue with the executions. Since they, don't, since they didn't find another way, they didn't, they didn't tell us how else they want to be killed, go ahead and do lethal injection then. We were worried about that. And so then we found out that the 10th Circuit, because it got challenged, the 10th Circuit, which is the regional court of that area, that, which Oklahoma is a part of, said, no, 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 no. Y'all acting crazy over there in Oklahoma. No execution. Stop it. This has been a, this has been a game. And it's been really hard as somebody who's an organizer supporting the local members on the ground, supporting the family, both Antoinette Jones and, uh, and mom, I call her Mama Jones, but Madeline Jones. Mama Jones and their brother and their dad, and especially Julius, who's been on death watch for over a week, listening to these different reports come in at any point in time. Am I going to get killed? Am I not going to get killed? Y'all going to kill me? Y'all not going to kill me? It's been an emotional roller coaster for the family, for the community, and especially for Julius. Where we're at right now is because that 10th Circuit said, don't kill nobody, the attorney general, he has now tried to challenge that decision of the 10th Circuit Court. And we are waiting for that response mm. because of that challenge from the attorney general, Gen General O'Connor. Uh, today was uh, October 28th. There was a gentleman by the name of John Grant who was scheduled to be executed today. He is on pause. Mm. Julius Jones, he has a set execution date for November 18th because that 10th Circuit said no more executions. November 18th has been canceled. That is a victory. Mm. But it's not the long term victory. We want Julius to be free, right? If the November 18th is canceled, he stays in prison for the rest of his life. The only two opportunities we have right now to save Julius and get him home is one, again, the general, excuse me, the governor has to sign uh, the permission for him to be released, not just on his own accord, 
But his own board, his pardon and parole board said, this is the right thing to do. So he should sign that and go with that recommendation. Or Julius has a scheduled hearing, the clemency hearing that got rescheduled on November 1st, which is this coming Monday. Mm. We need that clemency hearing to happen so that Julius can tell his story for the first time so that people can, so that we can hear what his alibi, what he was at home with his family when the murder happened. We have to be able to have the witnesses and the information and the stuff that was not shared the first time 21 years ago when Julius had his first case and his attorneys didn't have any experience running a capital murder case or dealing with anybody on death row. We are calling for November 1st to happen for that hearing to take place. We need the governor's pardon and parole board to happen. It is not up to the pardon and parole board if that's going to happen on November 1st. It's up to the executive director, his name is Tom Bates, and it's up to the general counsel of the pardon and parole board. So we need those two solutions to happen right now. We need that hearing on Monday and we need the governor to take action immediately so that Julius can come home and so that the Paul, the Paul excuse me, uh, Paul Howell's family, who was the man who was killed, his right. family can, can be at ease and rest and recover because we are praying for his family too. What happened to his family, what happened to him is not okay. But we also don't want them to kill another innocent man and call that justice just because. We need the governor and we need the partner parole board to do the right thing. But I, but I'm under the um, understanding that Mr. Howell's family does not support the support that the they do not support Julius being released. They do not support that. No, they do not. Is that accurate. Yes, ma'am. That so is they, accurate. They do not. They support believe that. they believe that even with all the evidence, with all the information that has released over the last several years, but certainly most recently. All the work that has happened in the state of Oklahoma, even knowing, um, because I, I've actually watched uh, information get out there about the person that is actually, well, that, that is alleged to be uh, responsible uh, for um, Mr. Howell's murder. Even with all of that, the family is saying they still think Julius should be held and executed or just held. It's, I've watched two interviews, Oklahoma's media. They've had two interviews. I have watched them, Tamika, say that they want him to be held and executed. That is what I've heard latest from the Howell family, yes. Wow, okay. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just so unfortunate, man. Just being, being a victim of the injustice system, just understanding how they get it wrong, just understand how you can be falsely accused and sit and just serve time for a crime that you didn't commit, right? to know that there's a brother, and, and he's not the only brother, and throughout history, we found out that people sitting on death row should have never been on, even in prison. Definitely. And to see that we still have a justice system that when there is even a shred or doubt that someone committed a crime is willing to put someone to death is, is so, is mind boggling to me. Mm-hmm. Like it, it does, if someone else admits to a crime, that you're about to take someone's life for, that in itself should at least say we're not taking this. Stop the process. That's right. You know, and and, and the fact that that is not the process is the fact that that doesn't immediately happen to me is just like, who created these laws? Who, what, you know, they said that the laws are supposed to be for the people, by the people. What people sat down and came up with this process and said that this made sense? Some very sick people, my son. I've learned a lot. So I've been doing organizing work for the last 12 years. This I've worked on a lot of cases to free people who were about to be executed. I've never been this close to 
the family. And I've spoken to Julius. Um, there, there are two sick things that have come up for me in this case. One is I don't understand why if somebody, in this case, Julius Jones, I don't understand why if Julius Jones had a hearing that was scheduled so that he could testify, so that they could sort out the evidence and make a recommendation to the governor. I don't understand why then the warden of Oklahoma State Penitentiary, where he is currently sitting, would put him on death watch before his hearing took place. It's mind boggling to me. When you are about to be on death watch, they ask you the most sickening questions. What do you want your last meal to be? Who do you want to hold your hand when you do it? Who do you want to witness the execution? Psychologically, what that can do to somebody. And then they, they lock you underneath the jail in a little cold cell and they feed you food through the door. But you have you have a 50-50 possibility because you just got a recommendation to the governor to keep you alive. So why they would put you on death watch to begin with is sticking to me. And to your point, uh, my son, about policies and who makes these rules, that was the warden's decision. And the warden is not elected. Then I'm trying to understand why we even do the death penalty to begin with. Right. Right. Why is that even still a thing? That right. states, that people, that, that systems, we, we know. We know that there are people who have been executed who were innocent, and we still do it. We know that there are other ways we have talked about restorative justice in this injustice system, and, and that executing people actually doesn't stop crime. So there is a whole entire conversation we need to have, and, and, I, and I have learned so much and been challenged so much. I have lost sleep. I've had nightmares. I've been praying very hard for Julius. We, this is we, not we, because we didn't do this shit. Can I cut that? We didn't do this. But the, the people who made these decisions, to your point, my son, are some cruel, sick, and devilish people. How, how you can even do that to me is like, I don't understand who, I, I don't even understand how you're human. I don't get it. I don't understand. It's torture and yeah. it's disgusting. And it happens to our people the most. It's unbelievable if you ask me, man. You know, it's sickening. I've, I've been yeah, watching this case, you know, and watching you, you know, people real close to me, Irv, you know, this is one of his close friends and just seeing the toll that, that is, is taken, you know, and, and it's not even, this is not even somebody that I, I physically know, but just watching it through y'all and just, just having a heart as a human being, it's like, damn, this man's life is, is on the verge of being taken for something that more than likely, you know, there is evidence that says that he didn't do. That's right. You know? And since he's been incarcerated, so he went to jail when he was 19. He's 41 now. At this point, he's been in jail longer than he's been alive for something that he didn't do and wasn't even at. And so to take his life, that means he lived 19 years. Because it's like we're, we're talking about taking his life in the execution sense, right? Yeah. But to take his life and to lock him up, he's been in there since he was 19. And what I, and so, so one, he's been held wrong, right? Like the, he wasn't supposed to be in it to begin with. His, his future has been taken from him. And if he has any small chance of a future after this, which is dependent on the work that we all do. So quick uh, call to action to folks. We need folks to go visit freejuliusjones.com. That is where folks can make phone calls to the people are asking, how can I help? How can I help save this black man? We need folks to go visit freejuliusjones.com so that they can make phone calls, not only to the governor, but to the executive director and that general counsel that I was talking about, 
that window is very, 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 very small. We have between now and Monday. And if uh, we do win that, or excuse me, if we do not win that and the attorney general wins his case by uh, contesting what the 10th circuit did, then they will proceed with an execution. Mm. So this is not like, we got all the options are still on the table, but the window that we have is a lot smaller, right? We have between now and November 18th. Now we've got between now and whenever that attorney general response comes back. And we don't know when that is. That can come out tonight, right? Um, and so we have that smaller window. But I, 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 do, I want folks to go to freejuliusjones.com. I want folks to follow the Grassroots Law Project. I want to shout out Until Freedom for all of the support that y'all have been doing, both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. Folks don't understand how we always organize and we be getting stuff done. But even on your social media page and the work that y'all have been doing and phone calls y'all been making have helped make that useful, have helped push the uh, envelope so that the governor can pay attention. Because no, the thing that we know, go ahead. It, it's interesting that you say that because I've sat by and, you know, people all oh, why to me. Mallory always have something to say. Why does he? So sometimes I just sit by and I say, OK, let me just, you know, play my role, be in the background, do the things behind the scenes. But I realized that if I didn't say anything on social media and rev up our audience, if you will, the people who listen to and support us, it would just be days that go by. And Julius wouldn't even be mentioned other than right. on Grassroots Law page. You know, of course, Sean King has talked about him, um, you know, several times. And you see some of the same people out there advocating. But the folks who claim that we all are uh overwhelming and we are co-opting and we're all of these things they have not done one thing to bring attention to this situation and to try to fight to save julius's lives and the reason why they can't do that is because they spend so much time focused on trying to tear other people down that they're not even they don't have any goal because they I don't, don't even do julius, the work to me Julius Jones is probably one of the most important issues of our time, right? right? Not because friends and family that we know have come to us, but no, we know the facts. We understand the story. And yet there are many days that Julius is not even being mentioned by some of these same people who have so much to say about us. And I recently saw you online saying that one, you don't know everything and two, you shouldn't spend your life talking about other people. And I know that the work sort of at times, all of the energy, the negative energy, especially can get you down, especially while you're also working with someone who's on death row, dealing with his family. It's a lot. Irv Roland, for those people who don't know, we keep mentioning him, but we haven't said Irv Roland, who is our friend, who's also um, a, a coach within the uh, NBA. Um, he works very closely in, in terms of training um, uh, uh, athletes, not just in the NBA, but the NFL. And, and he also has a youth organization where he trains young people as well. And, and he's our brother. Um, you know, he said to me one day, I called him, he said in his heart, he believes that Julius's life is going to be saved. And I want to believe that also. But if for some reason this system does not do what it is supposed to do, you should just know, Tiffany, that the world will acknowledge eventually how hard you went for Julius and how much um, it became your own story. Like, you know, not just something you're working on, but I see you and your own leadership developing and you growing. And so I just want to make sure to give you your flowers on street politicians and Thank make you, sure sis. you know that you're loved and appreciated. 
And that means so much to me coming from y'all as people that two things that you said, one, that means so much to me because everybody that we don't know can talk about us. But what really matters is the people that do know us. Yeah. And I also know that if at any point I am stepping out of line, which has happened before, that the people that love me and the people that got my back are the ones that I can go to who will tell me the truth. And so to even have, and this is not to reverence you and my son in any different way, right? But, but to have people that I look up to and people who I feel like have done this work genuinely, even though they get dragged, even though they get talked about. And folks don't always recognize this, but Tamika, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, y'all get asked to come and do this work. You don't just go in everybody's business and show up and say, I'm gonna help y'all and save the world. People at, same thing for Sean King. People called Sean to say, hey, can you help with the Julius Jones case? This wasn't him popping up saying I wanted to help. He actually tried to avoid it because he knows that people talk crap about him all the time. And I know that that struggle as a leader is hard. And so it, I have been yeah. nervous, right? To say, okay, well, people, what the people gonna say? But at the end of the day, exactly what you said, Tamika, it doesn't matter what people say. I'm doing God's work. God asked me to be here. God put me here. I've been praying since I left the NAACP to do work that really, really mattered to me. And this is the work that really, really matters. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because ain't nobody else going to fly to Oklahoma and yell at the governor, organize a protest, talk to Julius on the phone, who also believes that he will be saved. Julius doesn't believe he's going to die. I've spoken to Julius. Julius says, listen, I, I believe and I have prayed that I'm mm. going to be here. But that this is a, this is about me and God is using me for a bigger cause. Mm. And if Julius, if Julius on death row can say that to me, then I have no other choice but to do the work. So that means a lot, sis. Thank you for my flowers. I love you. That's right. Roses, bouquet of roses. <laughs> well, Tiffany, it was, you know, it's a pleasure to have you. It's always a pleasure. Like she said, the work you're doing is definitely God's work. I got to get you your God's work hat because you got to wear it, you know. But um, we love you, man. Continue to, to fight. We, we're praying for Julius. We're fighting for Julius. And like you said, we believe that God is going to do what he does, man. And he will definitely be free. And he will be back where he's supposed to be, man. So let's just, from God's ears, from our mouth to God's ears. Amen. All right, Amen. peace, Tiffany. Thank you. Keep love fighting. Thank you. Love fight. you guys. Love you too. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. 
I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. So, you know, that interview with Tiffany is really, really powerful, but we need to bring our next guest on as well. And so I think we can uh, really give a, a, a summation, if you will, of both interviews at the end, if that's okay with you. Because, you know, I think I'm like part producer of Street Politicians. And <laughs> Lord, <laughs> Don't Lord. roll your eyes. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Listen, if that's what you want to do, but shout out to Tiffany for coming up here with that information and just being dope anyway. Yeah, cool. So we'll talk about both interviews after. Right now, we've got our next guest. A friend, another friend, friend. another day. As usual. As usual. We have a a great friend joining us today. Uh, This is is a story that I feel extremely uh, connected to because I knew uh, this young sister before she um, ended up being incarcerated. Actually, we hung out in the streets in New York. We was out in the street partying and doing it outside. up. Okay, that uh, was yeah. outside. Yeah, some, <laughs> some years ago. And um, she has an incredible story. And, and, you know, we love to highlight people who have turned their pain, their trauma, their tragedies into purpose and passion. Um, and certainly Topeka Sam has done that. Topeka K. Sam, to be exact. She has certainly turned... Um, a a story that some would think, where do you go from here? You know, how could you ever even make a comeback from um, where she's been? But she certainly has. Uh, she's the, the founder and CEO of Ladies of Hope Ministries, which is a facility that really manages and cares for and helps to advocate for and is a re-entry program for women who are formerly incarcerated. Um, And, you know, there are many people who have found Ladies of Hope to be a beacon, a light for what we do to support women um, who've been incarcerated. You know, as you know, we talk about all the time that that is one industry and and one um, area that is under-resourced and, in fact, in many places is non-existent. But 
um, you know, Topeka Sam has has started a program there. And I think we can just go ahead and bring our sister on and let her talk about her story. So welcome to Street Politicians, uh, Topeka K. Sam. Hey, Thank Topeka. You. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much, Tamika D. Mallory and my <laughs> son, Lennon. I don't know if there's a middle initial. My it's an E. It's an E. It's an E. Okay, but you don't use it. So you just nope, I don't. go by my son. So, okay, so thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. Thank you. So let's get into it. So first of all, first of all, you're everywhere and I think everybody knows your story, but they don't, right? Just like folks say I'm everywhere and people think they know my story. And it's funny because this morning I got a call from an elder who I've known forever. She's from the same town that my mom is from. Um, in Alabama. And she's like, I had no idea that your son's father was murdered. And I had no idea. And I'm like, this lady has been knowing me since I was like a young teenager. And yet still, she doesn't know these things. She said she heard me on Jamel Hill's podcast while driving late night in the rain. And she said she asked a young person to direct her to something that she could listen to that would, you know, keep her going on the ride. And this was just a few nights ago. And she said she listened to this podcast and heard all of this new information about me. So people don't always know your story, even though you think that you told it over and over again. So we've got to ask you on Street Politicians to tell your story um, to make sure that our listeners know and understand who you are and where you come from. I am from New York. You knew that. But I grew up in Long Island in Manorville. Uh, my parents were franchise business owners. They owned a Carbo franchise in Brooklyn for over 20-something years and two restaurants in Harlem. And they grew up in Harlem in the Bronx. They wanted a different life for us. So we were the only Black family in our neighborhood. We came to the city every weekend where I learned how to play piano at um, Harlem School of the Arts. So I was there every weekend. And then I would go to Brooklyn and then come back and then go right back out to New York. So that was my life, me and my brothers. And when it was time for me to go to college, obviously that was gonna be my trajectory. I chose an HBCU because to be frank, you know, I wanted to be around other kids that were black and like me. And I wanted to be in community with my people because I had been around all white people all the time. And though my friends and loved them, it, I just wanted something different. And so I went to Baltimore and went to Morgan State University. And I experienced life very differently. Um, it was another culture shock because, you know, I come from one place to another. I get to Baltimore and those super excited because now I'm finally in community. Um, you know, often I say my swag was a little different. And so I was, you know, kind of isolated. I was told like, you know, you talk like you're white or you think you're better than us. or you're pretty to be dark skinned and all these things that I never heard before. And, um, so through that, you know, I found myself really just trying to find a sense of connectedness and belonging. I really wasn't dating before I went to college. My father was very strict. Um, and I started dating. I started dating guys who were from the city, who were from the street. And eventually they were guys selling drugs. And I thought that I could do it better because I thought I was smarter. And I found myself engaged in that lifestyle. And this went on for years. And through that, um, I was also, I'll, I'll speed it up to being uh, maybe 35, around 35 years old. I was division chairperson for Amtrak for New York and DC. Um, I had one business and I wanted to open another business and I had stopped being engaged in that lifestyle probably about seven years prior. And I received a phone call out of the blue. And um, I was like, well, damn, 
I can do this real quick, connect some people, make this money to start this next business and I'm out. This one last run. And that one last run ended up being a federal drug sting operation. And so I found myself in Virginia um, in a county jail and I thought I would bail out. No big deal. It was like I said, it was a sting operation. There were no drugs. I was added into a superseding indictment. Um, I was set up. And so that was that. But that's not what happened. And um, the judge was like, when I thought I was going to bail out, you know, you're a drug queen pin and a threat to society, no bail. And um, I began to really understand at that point that the legal system um, was very different than what I thought uh, prior to that. And so now I'm in this county jail in Virginia and I'm like, all right, well, now I'm going to be here. I'm not going to bail out. I need to begin to become a part of this new community I'm a part of. And while there, um, selfishly, I started going to NA and AA classes because I was not able to be out of my cell. I was separated as a federal detainee in a county jail. And so they had to keep us separate. And so I was in a cell 21 to 23 hours a day by myself. And so I would go out to go to these programs. And so when I went to the um, NA class, I asked the sisters, I was like, you know, why did you use drugs? Because I had an idea that people use drugs because they wanted to. I didn't have anyone in my family that struggled with substance misuse at the time. I did not know um, the impacts that it had because I wasn't connected in that way. And um, one of the sisters told me that her father had been raping her and gave her heroin and told her to take the heroin so the pain would go away. And another young lady said that the only time she was able to spend time with her mother was when they smoked crack together. And it was all of these different stories and testimonies. And I remember being spiritually convicted. Um, I, was, um, I was raised in the church. I knew who God was. And I um, said, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and plead guilty. And I did. And I went to federal prison. How long, how long were you in federal prison? I ended up spending three years in federal prison. Um, I was in five different jails, two county jails, three federal prisons. Um, I came home in 2015. But while I was inside, you know, whether I was in the county jail where it was poor, black, poor, white women, um, you know, low levels of education, no access to any resources. When I went to federal prison, it was more like doctors, lawyers, senators, judges, women who had, you know, high affluence, high levels of education, um, different types of opportunities. But it was still the same underlying issues sexual trauma and violence, mental health issues, uh, lack of resources and opportunity. And so while I was there, you know, God just imparted in my life that I needed to start the organization and gave me the name of the organization and told me what I needed to do. And so I came home in 2015 and just began to hit the ground and learn. So, you know, I'm always, you know, coming from a different background, like you said, you came from more affluent you know, upbringing and going into prison. Was it like a real shock? Because I know most people that I talk to that come from a fluent background, they just think everybody that's in jail, supposed to be in jail, mm -hmm. they're the worst people in the world. They just commit crimes and they don't want to hear right. nothing about it. Were you really like shocked to see that these are just everyday people that are down on their luck, that have hard times. Some of them shouldn't even be here. Like, did this, were you shocked by what you saw in the system? Absolutely. I, um, to your point, I had the biases. I thought it was a certain type of person that went to prison, right? A certain type of person that was in there. You know, I would watch cops locked up abroad and all these things, and you would see a type um, until I became that type, right? And while I was there, 
And I remember um, after I was sentenced, I was on that plane. They call it Con Air, the transport plane. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to myself, Dan, the last flight I was on was a first class flight to Hawaii. And here I am now handcuffed and shackled um, to a sister who had never been on a plane at all. And mm. to see, mm. Mm. see how no, that, wait a minute, that was too deep. We got to go back to that. You said you the last time you were on a plane. It was to Hawaii, first class. You were on vacation or, you know, yeah, going to vacation. Hawaii. And then mm-hmm. this time, the next time you're on a plane, is shackled to a woman who had never been on a plane at all. Yeah, never. Mm-hmm. It was. And I said, in that very moment, I said, you know, it didn't matter, you know, what, what mode of transportation we go in our lives, that we're mm-hmm. more connected than we think we are. Mm-hmm. And though I, I like I kept myself away for so long, because even when I had first got arrested and my friends were like, you're not like them. Don't talk to them. You know, we're going to all of that. Right. That when I was like, wait a minute, I am them. That is me. You know, I just had a different level of you know education or opportunity really afforded by my family. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I was no different. And it really allowed me to connect to people in a very different way. Let me ask you this question that go backwards because you, 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 and I know you probably are so used to telling this story, but again, most people don't know. When you say you were a part of a sting operation, explain to us what that means. You, you right. were called by individuals who were agents, like they were already, what, what was the, the details of that? So what happened was um, I got called back, like I said, it was like seven years, seven years later, because I had stopped selling drugs for a while. Um, it was a whole situation that happened. And that's a whole nother story. We don't have enough time. But I decided when I got this call seven years later, because I knew them, it was my connect. Um, I dealt with them before. They were, you know, Mexican. They were in the cartel. And I was like, all right, well, you know, these are the same people. It was never a problem before. You know, things are good. This is cool. Um, but, you know, you know, especially when you're connected spiritually, even when you don't realize you are, that something just doesn't seem right. But nonetheless, um, I end up meeting with them. And some, I was supposed to meet with them originally in Baltimore. After I flew out to California to have a face-to-face conversation. And um, they told me to meet this person in Virginia. And I was like, I'm not going to Virginia. Like, there's no need for me to go to Virginia. And I kind of prolonged it. But one of my co-defendants was like, look, let's just go get this done. Da, 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 da. Yo, I'll drive you out there. So we went. And the journey out there, I laugh now because it was like all the signs in the world, like, don't go. God was like, stop. And I remember him and I leaving from the city, Harlem. And we left and we're driving down. Usually, even when I drove down to Baltimore on my own, I would just be able to get a straight, you know, straight shot, short trip, no big deal. But every hour I had to go to the bathroom. So I kept making him stop so I can go to the bathroom. And I was like, something isn't right. My spirit was like, it's not right. We keep, I fall asleep. I wake up to some smoke and I'm like, what's going on? We pull over, find some kind of like shop, auto shop. And the guy said that the transmission went out. And I said to him, this is a sign we need to turn around. And he like, nah, this is a sign. This nigga who just sold me his car need to give me my money back. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So then I'm like, something isn't right. Then we end up going to um, rent a car right across the street from the place. And we get there to where we're supposed to meet these people. Now, the person that we were supposed to meet wasn't there. Some other person came up. And let me take it back. So before that, 
this homeboy of mine, he was like, yo, you need to go see these like, you know, these Santa Loas, you know, the Spanish people that tell you about all of that. Now I was Christian and I knew better at the time, but I decided to do what he said. And the guy who I spoke to told me that, because I asked about this situation because I had been out for so long. So I was asking, he's like, no, everybody around you is good. But if you go to a table and you meet somebody with a New York baseball cap on, that's the police leave. Do you know when I got to that restaurant and that man walked in, it was a man with a New York baseball cap. Mm. He sat down at the table. I literally got nauseous. I got up. I went to the bathroom. I had like three cell phones. I had to throw the chips out, clear the things in the bathroom. I come back to the table and I told my homeboy, let's go. We walk out. As soon as we walk out, it was probably about 20 cops that just swarmed us, told us to get on the ground and all that. And I just kind of looked up and looked like, see, like I knew this, right? So then I get there. They take us to this little place and they separate us in these two little rooms. And we're there. And then the Fed, he comes over and he's like, you know, such and such wants to talk to you. So of course, red flag goes up. And I'm like, they don't let you talk to each other. So like, what are they trying to do? You know? And he's like, um, yo, Tell them what they want to know. And I'm like, you need to get a lawyer. He's like, yo, that's your connect. I don't even know them people. But I was like, listen, you need to get a lawyer. I'm going to do the same. And I just completely shut down. We get to the county jail. And I remember being, you know, they put you in this little holding cell. And the women are with the women. Of course, the men are with the men. So we're starting, <laughs> we're starting to make, we have an opportunity to make our phone calls. And he goes out to the pay phone. And I'm just sitting down. And a young girl, she's probably like 18. She says to me, yo, that's your Cody? And I look, she's like, girl, you finished. <laughs> and I laughed because he was at the payphone. That dude like six something. She could, hear. Something. She could she hear him, but he was six something tall, big dude. And he's sitting on a payphone crying. So mm. she saw that and she was like, <laughs> you're finished, right? Like, girl, you don't, you know, and she could hear him talking to whoever he was talking to. I don't know. And so, yeah, that's what um, happened. So that's part of like how I got to that place. But the a sting is when, you know, they set you up. So a conspiracy, which is what it was, um, it's one, it has to be one or two, two or more people having to talk about this thing, right? But because... It wasn't considered entrapment, though it was. Um, they put it in the Fourth Circuit, which is in the federal prison, in the federal uh, government. Fourth Circuit is like Virginia, Maryland, that area, which is one of the harshest circuits. Um, mm -hmm. The reason why it was really jurisdictional entrapment, because had my case been out of Baltimore, likely I wouldn't have gotten any jail time because there were no drugs in the case. Um, but because they did it in Virginia, they did it purposely because they knew in Virginia, I would definitely be prosecuted in Richmond, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Well, dang, that's crazy. So what did your parents have to say? But how did your family feel when oh all attacked? Well, when I was in, of course, during arraignment, well, when I called everybody and they came down to, you know, bring deeds to houses and money and whatever to bail me out, you know, of course, everybody was shocked. All my friends, all my family, they had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I had like living different lifestyles. I had my work life. I had my my friends from college life. I had this street life. And, you know, I didn't realize how separate I kept everything until it was sentencing day. And some of my friends that I had known for 20 years, never met my parents, didn't know I had brothers. 
um, like knew nothing about me personally, yet I knew everything about everyone else. So they were very shocked, of course, disappointed. Um, like, you know, my mother, I remember when they had to do the PSR, which is the pre-sentence report, where they call and ask about you and your family. They asked my mother if I was on drugs. And my mother said, if she was, I would understand. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, I mean, I know reliving all of that is not what you probably were expecting today because you have so much more um, that we can that we will cover. But I think it's just important for people to understand how you can get wrapped up so quickly in these situations. And, you know, you say seven years, you, you try to change your life. God gave you new opportunities, you know, new spaces and places. But sometimes we think we can slide backwards and then look, you know, look, look what happens. Because at that point, it's always race, a sign, man. Yeah, it's always, it's always a sign. A sign. I tell people all the time. I remember when I was in the streets and I had one out of town, a lady pulled me to the side. I never forget it. And I was out of town hustling and it was in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And the lady pulled me to the side and said, what are you doing here? And I said, what? She said, get out of here now. You don't belong here. I never went back. That's the last day I hustled in my life. I followed the signs and everybody that I know out there, two of my friends got killed out there. And one of them is serving life hmm. in that same town. Jesus. Always yeah, follow the signs, man. So how did what, what was the process for you coming home? So I was originally sentenced to 130 months. So that's 10 years, 10 months, because it was a mandatory minimum in my case. I was convicted of conspiracy to sell kilos of cocaine or more, um, because that was the conversation. And again, when you talk about conspiracy, like, you know, Real, real talk, it was, I was going to purchase 50 kilos and they were like, oh, well, we'll give you 30 more kilos, you know, basically on the, on the hook, right? So with no money. So obviously if a person is like, we're going to give you more for no money, if you're going to take it right or wrong. But all that was, was them to do it in order for them to get the, the um, mandatory minimum up, right? So that's why they did that in order to get me in a different cat sentencing category. So, you know, you learn about all these things afterwards, but that's what it was. So when I was pleading guilty, I left my plea open so that I could appeal my case with a downward departure, which is called the safety valve. And in the safety valve, it's five different criteria that you have to meet. Like you can't have a criminal category under one. You have to fully tell the truth about yourself. Um, And it's like three other things involved. But after that, I requested a downward departure at sentencing, obviously, and they denied my downward departure, which is why I ended up getting the 130. Fast forward about a year later, I'm in federal prison and I'm, you know, telling my lawyer, like, listen, I want us to appeal. Like, there has to be a way that we can do this. I remember reading the law, going to the law library and all that. There was a motion called 3582, which is a motion for a sentence, or it's called imposition of sentence. So through the Booker variance, which allows them to take into consideration, like other things, your your history, you know, where your upbringing, you know, any family, all these things, um, you can put in a motion to do that. So I prayed, was fasting, doing all these things. And I wrote the letter to the judge and the lawyer put in the motion. And on March 5th, 2014, which is the day before my birthday, I got a call in the office and I was told that my sentence was reduced from 130 months to 65 months. 
At that time, I qualified for what they call a drug program, and it's RDAP. And RDAP was the only program in the federal system that you can take to give you a year off your sentence. Now, I didn't know, you know, again, by the grace of God, because I didn't have any drug history, but I didn't know how I qualified. But when they told me that I would get a year off, I was like, sign me up, send me anywhere. And they end up sending me to Greenville, Illinois. So I took that program. And at that time, a law passed called All Drugs, All Drugs Minus Two. And with that, I ended up getting another 15 months off my sentence. So I ended up getting called into the office in Greenville, Illinois, and I was told I was going home in two weeks. And that's how it happened. I ended up being released. Um, and I knew at that point, I was like, God has something greater for me. Amen. Like, what are you doing? Right. And I was like, I know this is what it is. So let me follow and let me be obedient. Let me do everything that God said for me to do. And that's exactly what I've done. And so, I, I mean, I watched you when you came home. It was, you really didn't have the program yet, mm-hmm. but you were working to um, get secure housing, to secure building, if you will, you could have Ladies of Hope Ministries operate from, you got right in and started trying to, you know, figure out how to make it work. And, you know, I think the thing that's interesting, we say it all the time, but it definitely um, needs to be stated in this case that we have the skill set, even when we use it for things that are not good. It's really about taking those same skills and applying it to things that are actually positive. We can make big things happen. I look at Jamila T. Davis, who you know um, and have worked with, and just looking at how innovative Jamila is and mm-hmm. how she's able to help so many other people um, you know, make money and 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 figure out ways to be innovative in terms of their ideas, things they want to do. So this is these are these are things that it's not even Jamila's wheelhouse, but she still can get in and help you figure out how to make things happen because that's the type of brain that she has. She yeah. just didn't know that it needed to be used for the right reasons. And also the type of people around us, the company we keep, because our company tells us to do this or that. And sometimes we follow and don't realize that God has his own plan for our lives. So Mm -hmm. Ladies of Hope Ministries is your plan, but you had to go through all of these things to end up in this place. And I feel like that in my own life, I've had to go through such pain and trauma in order to end up in the place where I am today. And so I'm proud of you, first of all, because I know the story and have watched you hustling. You didn't take no for an answer. People try to shut you down, shut you out, and you kept pushing. So tell us now, ladies of hope, tell us what it is and where are you trying to take it? How can we all help you to get it there? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, So Ladies of Hope Ministries mission, we say is epic to end poverty and incarceration of women and girls globally. And we do that through two buckets. That's direct service and sustainability and policy and advocacy. What we know is we can't change laws. We can't change, you know, conditions for people until our basic human rights are met, which is safe housing, equitable opportunity for career um, and also food, healthy food. And so we do Hope House, which is our first level of safe housing for women and girls um, impacted by any type of state violence. So we've expanded from not just women who've been impacted by incarceration, but women who've been impacted by any type of violence. And so we have a house in the Bronx, we have one in New Orleans, and we're developing our first uh, 20 unit apartment building in Miami and South Florida for women and girls, over women over the age of 55 who are returning into South Florida 
um, because the numbers in Florida are crazy. And we're going to be scaling that right now. We're working in seven different cities to provide housing and build affordable housing developments and the Caribbean, Trinidad specifically right now. Then we have our Angel Food Project, which partners with Instacart, Whole Foods and other supermarkets where we give out fresh bags of food seven days a week, uh, 365 days. We've been doing that for over five years now. Every Since I've been home, I've been doing that. Before I even started LOHM, became a program of that. Um, our Pathways for Equity program is a partnership with Virgin Unite, where we partner with corporations to give growth-focused positions to women um, who are impacted by these systems in corporate America. Um, changing what diversity and inclusion looks like, not just race, religion, gender, identity, but also lived experience. And so we partnered with you know, people from Chanel to now Virgin Orbit, which is super exciting because we can provide jobs to women um, in aerospace. And so that's really, really a great, again, a great career path. And then on our policy and advocacy work, we have our Faces of Women in Prison program, which is a global speakers bureau where we trained over 50 women um, on how to use their voice in order to share their experiences to change policy, but also become public speakers as paid public speakers, because so often uh, we're asked to share our stories, but we're not actually compensated for it. That's and right. so to your point earlier, we relive this trauma um, all the time and then not giving anything, but, you know, someone crying and, you know, thank you for your story, but then it doesn't, you know, equal to anything. And people have childcare, they've taken off of work, um, and they need to be compensated. They are an expert in the space. And so that's what we've done. That program um, is also funded by Chanel, uh, R for Justice, Ford Foundation, and the NFL. And then we have our Epic Ambassadors work, which is our um, policy and advocacy work. We train women on how to draft and write legislation, partner mm -hmm. with local elected officials uh, to get bills moved and then get them registered as lobbyists in their state. And so we're super excited about that because we feel that if you live the particular experience, you need to lead the policies to change that. We know what needs to happen. And again, you know, for me doing work around the country, passing legislation, what I learned is a lot of times they have people going to what they call legislative advocacy days and again, taking off of work, not getting paid. But, you know, as a consultant on a lot of projects, I also saw where we were retaining lobby firms for ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a month. And right. then that's not actually going to the people who are actually doing the lobby. And so I said, well, there's an opportunity there. How do we actually get people registered as lobbyists in order for them to get paid as lobbyists? to do the work that they were doing for free as lobbyists. Um, so that's really exciting because now we're building this community of women and girls from around the country that are doing that work. Um, so, and then our last program is our health equity work where we just recently partnered with Optum and trained 50 women to be birth doulas, um, to go into prisons to help women who are pregnant, but also in community for women who cannot afford um, a doula, but would like one as an alternative to you know maternal support and help. So that's the work that we do. Um, like I said, right now we're scaling to seven different cities in the Caribbean. So, you know, support from, you know, the community of like that look like us. I mean, you know, to be frank, most of our funding comes from, you know, philanthropy, large philanthropists, corporate dollars, but mostly white. And, you know, what is so disheartening to me is that incarceration and po poverty disproportionately impacts people in communities of color, yet we don't actually invest in the change in our own community. And so for me, you know, to be able to really connect to people that um, have the ability to push, right, our work to see opportunities for women and girls to change the outcomes 
for our families is critical. And I really would like to see more support from people of color in that. So tell us, tell us where we can find you, Esther. If you could tell us your website, all your social medias, where people can invest, because I hate the word donate, invest in what you're doing, because what you're doing is something that people need to invest in, especially our people. We need to see it as mandatory. You know, I hate that, you know, that people have expertise and come with this, this will and this energy to do good things for our community and we don't support it. So I just wanted to let everybody know how they can do that for you. Thank you so much. So the website is the T-H-E-L-O-H-M dot O-R-G. So for the ladies of hope ministries.org. Um, we're on all social media platforms as at the L-O-H-M. My social media platforms are at Topeka K Sam. Um, and then, you know, for us, and to your point, also my song, like for me, you know, what I realized most recently was, you know, I created a great nonprofit organization that is doing incredible work in four years, right? Um, we've grown tremendously and we've been able to do things that people haven't been able to do as a nonprofit for 20 years. But while I, re I realized that I was here touting about equity, that I wasn't even creating equity for myself, that when as a nonprofit, you know, founder, that at any time, if my board or someone decides that I need not to be in the seat, that then they can say to Pika, you know, thank you for your service. And that's it. And I have no legacy for my family. You know, I cannot create general, generational wealth for my family, for my six nieces and nephews and for my godchildren and all of that. And so what I decided to do was to start to launch, you know, for profit companies that actually help in order for me to build that wealth that will then I'll be able to fund my own nonprofit and be able to one day write my own $5 million check to my own organization in order for sustainability. So with that, I started Epic Financial, which is going to be launched fully in um, January, first quarter of next year. And that's a fintech platform that will actually give checking savings accounts uh, to people who are presently incarcerated with financial literacy. So when they get out, they actually have an account set up and don't have to worry about the barriers and banking and the barriers of all those things. Um, so super excited about that as well. And then, you know, really partnering with the not, a lot of other nonprofits and other organizations for them to also get their community embedded in the platform that will also help to support our people um, and community. So that's the things. But that's the work. That's the work, man. We really appreciate you. We, we know that we're taking up a lot of your time, but we truly appreciate you. You know, the work that you do, you know, we, we do work together. You know, we always see each other. And we we always rooting for you, man. Continue to do the work. Me being formerly incarcerated, I'm always inspired just seeing the work that you do. You know, it gives me a little extra energy knowing that, you know, we can come from whatever we come from and go through whatever we go through and still be successful and make sure that we pay it forward so that somebody who's coming from where we come from don't have to go through what we went through. Sure, sure. Thank you. I mean, I don't think there's much more that needs to be said. I'm happy that you came on today. Um, you know, Kat Trigg, our director extraordinaire, uh, really she loves her some Topeka. She loves Topeka, loves love Topeka. Her. And she kept saying, hey, and we were like, yep, no, absolutely. Let's get you on. Thank you for coming. And thank you for telling your story and digging into those deep places 
Um, because, you know, certainly when we talk about our trauma, it's not easy. You know, it's it, a lot of people kind of think it's just like a normal day, but it's not because it brings up memories that come into your mind that are not good memories, you know, but um, telling your story will help someone else, hopefully a younger person or even a person, an older person who's going through the same thing right now. We didn't get to talk about you being pardoned, um, but I think there is an, there's a different show that we need to do to talk about the Trump era, if you will, and you being pardoned by Trump, what that means. And also um, you and I have had some difficult conversations about the need to work with the, the Trump administration to help get people released and, and, and how to make that happen while still fighting against the, um, un, the, the very, very dangerous, if you will, uh, tone of that administration. So we want to bring you back to talk about that. But I think we've got to have you and Van Jones and some other people on at the same time so we can really get into a deep conversation about how we don't allow, how we make sure every administration pardons and works for us but yet still find a way to make sure our people feel like we're still 10 toes down. And I think Ladies of Hope Ministry allows you to be in a lot of spaces and show what you're still doing for our communities. So thank you so much, Topeka. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here. As Kat loves me, I love her equally. Um, and I love both of you, you know, as you say that you support my work, I support you. I, you know, appreciate you. I do know how difficult it is to me. I've seen, as you said, you, prior to me going to prison. And I've seen just all that you've done through, true and through. And so, you know, I, God bless both of you. I know how difficult that is to be on those front lines all the time. I would love to come back, back to talk about that <laughs> conversation yeah. that we have had, but also to talk about, you know, you know, how the community, like how, I mean, I got daggered. I mean, I probably would be dead if I actually, if God didn't spiritually put <laughs> the armor over me while I was going into some of those places. Um, but understanding that, you know, when your people are calling you from inside of prison every single day and they're like, they don't care whatever you can do to get us out of here because without them, that they, they would die in prison. You have to make a choice if you were oh, really certainly. going to, you know, and it's not about, you know, you, you have to be careful <laughs> to your point, right, on um, what you're doing and how you're doing it. But I think that it's also critical that we understand that, you know, whether we talk about, you know, Trump or Republicans or anyone that's gotten us to this point, every, everyone has gotten us to this point. When you think about the crime bill, you think about all those things, right? And who voted the crime bill in all of those things. Um, when we look at what's happening now, you know, I had some ideas of what I thought this present administration should have done immediately when they came in to right some of the wrongs that they were a part of that has not been done. Um, and who knows if it'll be done, right? And so I think, you know, as people, we need to really, really focus on our people and not so much the politics. And what we don't like, we need to change. So, you know, we need to run for public office. We need to take a hold of those seats. We need to, you know, figure out what's really happening in these communities around gerrymandering and everything else. And we need to position ourselves in these communities and take our communities back because without it, we're going to have these people representing us, which is not representing us at all. Oh, I heard you. There you have it. Topeka K. Sam, thank you for being with us today. Thank we appreciate you. you, love you, and we support you, sis. That's right. Thank you so Keep much. doing what you do. I appreciate y'all. Love you. Love you, too. Shout out to Topeka, man. Topeka, 
that was an excellent interview. I didn't know all of the stuff. I've definitely heard a lot about her being incarcerated. I didn't even know her background or where she was actually from. I just seen the work that she was doing. So she was very informative. And just seeing how she transformed that. Like, you know, I tell people, I'm about to, I told you I'm about to do a show called Evolutionary, where, you know, I talk about people who've been formerly incarcerated, who pe most people don't even know have been formerly incarcerated or don't understand just how great they are after being formerly. Because there's this stigma about you being incarcerated. And there's so many great people who've been incarcerated. So I want to do a whole show that just focuses That's on that. Scary. So shout out to Topeka and that, man. Shout out to her on that. Yeah, Topeka, is, she's, she's, she's a very driven young lady, always has been. She was driven when she was doing whatever, you know, form of um, dealing, drug dealing she was doing. She was ambitious then. Um, she's trying to get 50 keys, man. And I don't know if you know, but 50 keys is something. That's that's when you big outside. Mm, I didn't even 50 know. 50 keys. I, no, I don't know. You wouldn't know about 50 keys. But, you know, she... um. She's always been really ambitious and a hard worker. And, you know, it's just good to see that the story didn't end 100% tragically. Like, you know, it would have been tragic for her not to come back into society and, you know, figure things out and be able to make a way for other people. As you said to her, I thought that was so positive that you all, you know, I mean, I thought that was so powerful when you said that, you know, not only are you trying to you know, forge a way for yourself, but you're making a way for other people. So shout out to Topeka Sam. And then, of course, you know, our girl, Tiffany Lofton, who came on first to talk about Julius Jones, um, you know, just to see Julius, I mean, to see Tiffany out there fighting for Julius. And really, you know, her, her wings have sort of been cut where she's no longer under a certain type of organization. You know, she's she's a bit worked in labor. So that's one type of organizing model, of course, since she was at the NAACP, that's another structure that is very, very structured. When you work for the NAACP, you know, not to say that they wouldn't have been on this case because, um, you know, just thinking about like Jill Taker Edie, uh, she is a, a young sister who was at the NAACP who specifically worked on ending death row and was able to get different states to stop uh, uh, executing individuals. So not, I'm not saying that NAACP doesn't do that work, but, and that they wouldn't be involved in Julius Jones's situation. But the issue is that when you are an employee, you really do have to go up the chain to get the right way and the approval on how you can approach these issues. And so now to see her out there working with grassroots law, which is obviously an environment that gives um, you much more freedom to figure out what is the right way to run a campaign? And she's doing that and I'm watching it happen and I'm really, really super proud of her. And I hope that in the end, it, 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 is, it benefits Julius, you know, to have that energy on the ground. Um, when I think about it, actually, uh, the, the local NAACP president and the organization is involved. So to have all Until Freedom and Irv Roland and all of these different individuals and entities supporting to me that should make up the mix the soup that we talk about that will free this man you know i believe i really i really truly truly believe that man. and i believe it's definitely gonna happen soon so shout out to tiffany but um we go we come to my own i don't get it
you know, and it's, it's a little bit off of this, but it is has to do with us black people, you know, we talk about legacy organizations and you can't really talk about black legacy organizations without talking about HBCUs, you know, and unfortunately I had an opportunity to go to Howard campus a couple of days ago. And I really don't get this situation at all. Like I am so completely lost. You know, I, I, I looked, went to a campus and seen young black men, young men and women sleeping in tents, sleeping mm. in the buildings, talking of giving me blow, blow by blows of how there's mold in their rooms, how they don't even have Wi-Fi, how they're paying $50,000 to do online classes, how people are just, some of them have been told to come to the campus because they had living and they didn't have nowhere for them to live and they have to sleep in cars. Some of them talking about how the meal prep is so disgusting that you wouldn't even eat it if you was in prison. Like it, it was embarrassing because, you know, as a young boy hearing about HBCUs, I never went to one, but I have a lot of friends and family who right. have been yeah. to HBCUs and I, and I watched school days and I wanted to be part of that. You know, I wanted I wanted to go to HBCU. So to, to see that this is the experience of young freshmen and, and and a lot of them saying this, we don't have anything else. We we can't fail here. You know, like they saying that they they not even giving their courses properly. They don't have the opportunity to excel. They've given up everything. Their mother took out the loans. They took out, put liens on their homes, all type of things to be able to come to this experience and to see that this is what they're going through. They, they had, some of them had tears in their eyes. We had tears in our eyes just listening to the story. And I really just don't get how the administration at Howard allowed this situation to get to this you know. Well, let me say that there's a few things on that. Um, Howard's administration, of course, they have heavy, 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 heavy load and burden that they have to answer to as it relates to the conditions of the students. Absolutely. Um, even if they feel that some of it is uh, misunderstandings, overblown. I've heard all types of responses. They need to speak to it. They need to speak to the students directly, not try to isolate one or two students, but to speak to all the students in an open format uh, that gives them, the students, the opportunity to ask questions, to bring grievances, and that puts the administration in a place where they will respond to what they can respond to, where they will be able to hear um, and, and hear without, um, without animosity and a, a jerk to try to, you know, well, we're going to silence you by um, having you thrown out of school. It would be best for them to show up and get their sleeves rolled up and get into what is happening with the students and walk alongside them to try to fix some of these issues. So with that being said, the reason why I, I, I suggest that the um, administration sort of roll up their sleeves and get in there with Howard is because all of it, everything that's happening is not their fault alone. We have a problem with the funding, the real funding, yes, Granted, $50,000 is a lot of money from each student for the semesters. But if you go to predominantly white institutions, they are receiving more money and more support 
from the outside community, which are rich folks, particularly rich white folks with endowments to help these schools succeed. And the resources that they receive from the government is completely different. At HBCUs, they are suffering severely from underfunding and from the disrespect that continues to happen over and over for Black institutions within our society and by our government and the fact that there are too many people out here who do not see the need to educate and make comfortable Black students. So to be hostile towards the students, to me, is a lack of foresight and it's ignorant because really they could be coming together to show that these are some of the challenges that HBCUs go through. But the problem is that we are often wanting to put up a wall and to blame the victims rather than to understand that this is a problem that has to be worked through, mold has to be worked on, regardless of who is responsible for it. And if Caveras, which is the company uh, that owns and operates most of the buildings. So people need to understand that at Howard and other schools, they do not own and operate all of the uh, housing buildings, that there are other entities that have been bought in to do that because of the lack of funding within these institutions. And Cabarrus, um has not done a good job just trying to clean buildings and not actually doing the renovations is criminal, it's wrong, and the students need to be supported, their voices need to be uplifted. But I think this is also a good time to get into the real layers of what's going on with um, HBCUs, Black institutions, Black educational institutions, and to be able to see not where you can just blame um, you know, one entity or the other, but to look at the entire problem and to see how our government is also failing Black students in these colleges. It's a fact, you know, um, that that was one of the things that the, the kids talked. They, we sat and had, you know, a closed forum inside the auditorium in Blackburn in which, you know, we just listened to their grievances and they, and they have a whole plan. And Covaris was one of the places that they talked about. And they talked about also how the administration and how, you know, how it has a contract with Covaris that they could have broken, but because they didn't want to lose money, they allowed, the, the, you know, this to continue on. So as much as Covaris is responsible, you know, the fact that um, Howard University and who's in charge of those, the board members and, and everyone involved in that situation, president, everyone involved in not breaking this contract is when they see that you know it's not being handled properly. You know they also have to take some responsibility. Like you said, they should be they should be sitting out there with the, the the kids, saying, "Yo, you know none of our kids should have to sleep in rooms with mold in it." You know, so I mean, period. Exactly. They should be it. saying they should be together with the students, saying this is outrageous. Yeah. But you know what's happening instead is that every single day. The story is getting worse for the administration. Now I saw that the president, they, they have a sign, they got a big old poster and they have the president, uh, his picture oh, on no, it I, says- I, I got it. What? Oh, you have, yeah. So unfortunately that's what's happening because there is a level of hostility that, you know, it, it, it it's, it's unnecessary, but you know, hey, they'll figure it out.
I it's think the sign they got all over. They got this. Uh, they got this sign all over. All over. Once again, man, this was a dope show. You know, um, listening to Topeka just gave me reinvigorated a little bit of energy for me being formerly incarcerated. It means I got to do a little bit more. You know, she's out yeah. here, all of these programs, and you know, paying it forward. You know, we want to appreciate her for coming on the show. And um, we're praying for Julius, man. I, I believe, I really believe deep in my heart that, you know, this hearing is going to come and, you know, his stay of execution will result in him actually being released. I believe, I really believe that. I don't see, I don't see any other um, option in this situation. So shout out to Tiffany for updating us with that. And um, shout out to his family and friends and role. I mean, for um, Irv Rowland everybody who's been supporting him everybody who's been on the front line grassroots law and everybody man shout out to y'all man for the work that y'all doing out there so that brings us to end of another number one podcast <laughs> number one podcast in the world brings us to another end another show that we end and i want to appreciate y'all everybody who's been supporting us you know, I always say we number one, but we gradually moving there. You know, people are definitely being engaged and people stop me on the street saying how much they love this podcast. Just know that we appreciate you. If you have any suggestions, tell us things that you want to see, you want to hear, things you don't like, things you love, you know, how much you hate me or love me, whatever. I take all of it, man. We want all of the feedback. Go to Street Politicians Pod. You can leave suggestions there on Instagram for anything that you want to see or hear. You know, if you like Tamika's hair today, you can let her know. You know, <laughs> she we all we, right. we want all we want all of everything you got, man. So once again, I'm not gonna always be right. Tamika Mallory would not always be wrong, even though most of the time when it's between me and her, she will. But we will both always, and I mean always be authentic. Yeah, peace. Salute. Listen to Street Politicians on the Black Effect Network on iHeartRadio. And catch us every single Wednesday for the video version of Street Politicians on iWomen.tv. That's how we own it! Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 